Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abujamra, and if we haven't met yet, I am so glad you checked us out today. I would love for you to subscribe. I was going to say prescribe. I'm a doctor in my real job, and I certainly prescribe my share of meds. But for this, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast. And for those of you who have already subscribed, thank you. We, we love that you keep coming back for more. And I don't know about you guys, but I just think that these podcasts get funner and funner with time and with the more uh, we meet people and what they're doing for God. And so we're taking a break from our Dear Lena episodes. And some of you uh, are happy about that. And others of you might miss it when I'm not doing the Dear Lena. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Dear Lena is a series I'm doing where I talk about difficult questions and I, uh, you can send them to me, by the way, about life, faith, God, culture, and I try to answer them in a practical ER style sort of way. And uh, It's been fun to do those and uh, uh, once in a while we get lucky to have some guests that are just uh, worth hearing from and, and the work that they're doing. And today is such a day. I've got my friend Wendy Alsop, who I recently met but found out, and I'll, I'll catch you up in a minute, but we share a lot in common. We graduated from the same undergrad. In fact, Wendy, I, even before I get to the to the introduction, you and I graduated in the same year and never knew each other until recently. And uh, I just find that fascinating because it's uh, um, not a very uh, common college to go to. But anyway, Wendy now lives in St. Matthew's, South Carolina on a farm, which if you know me, I am obsessed with modern uh, farmhouses and everything that goes along with that. And uh, Wendy teaches math uh, at a local community college, which makes her more intelligent than most of us, including myself. And so God bless you, Wendy. But anyway, her um, the reason I'm excited to talk to her today is because she loves theology. Her, I believe, first book was called Practical Theology for Women and the Gospel-Centered Woman. So really her focus is on practical theology for women. Uh, her more recent book, which uh, has won awards, is called Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. I'll be giving away some of those books at the end. Uh, but for now, I want you to help me welcome Wendy. So sit up, listen up. We're going to have a great time finding out more about Wendy. Hey, how are you, my friend? Ah, that was a great introduction. Thank you, Lena. Um, I'm great. I'm great. And so excited to be with you. Tell me about the farm. What's going on there? Um, No, we don't have hens. We grow, um, we grow animals. We don't grow animals. We grow (laughs) crops. So um, normally we're, this will probably have a cornfield, maybe peanuts, peanuts and corn are the big ones. I'm from Wisconsin. Like I, I, I know farms. And I mean, is this like a little farm? You're messing around hobbies, or is it like you rent it out if people come and plant? Well, we own about 200 acres, but my dad is mostly retired now, and so oh. we um, share crops, which is a not. It doesn't have the best connotations to that word, but the way, in theory, the word is really supposed to work is that you partner with another farmer. And y'all oh. split the cost, and then you split the profit. Uh, and and this other guy um, is a younger guy, and Daddy helped him get a start in the farm. But he does all of the work, and then oh. he and Daddy split the cost, and then split the profit. So where do you guys sell the? the I want some of that produce. Well, it's, it probably ends up in your peanut butter. So it's not <laughs> it's not farm to table. It's uh, it goes to the mass oh. the mass peanut uh, the peanut. Um, industry you know well, I like big peanut butter, so it goes to big yeah peanut. there's a thing in the south is that a thing in south carolina the boiled peanuts right but it is an acquired taste and i've found so many peanut pe- uh, people who didn't grow up with them think they're the, the most horrible thing ever but if you grew up with peanuts or learned to love them the boiled peanut is a southern delicacy 
I'm with you. And I, I want to tell you, my friend moved to Tennessee and she took a picture on her Facebook aghast about the concept. And I felt nothing but jealousy because I've driven through the South and not everybody has them, but the, that's the corner of South Carolina and Georgia have them. And I wish that somebody would send me a little bag of boiled peanuts because I don't think there's anything like it. We love them like um, almost um, to a sickening extent where right when our peanut, you know, we we'll have like 200 acres of peanuts and right before they're ready for the big peanut people to come get them, my dad goes out in his pickup truck with a pitchfork and takes my boys with him and they pull up a bunch of raw peanuts and they'll go sit under the shade um, trees by our pond and pick them all off. And then huh. we'll boil them. My mom will boil them. And then we'll have a big family dinner only of boiled peanuts. That's all we eat for dinner. And my sister and my nephews and my boys, we all gather together with my parents and, oh. and we love it. Yeah, I was going to say, you, we, we graduated from the same school. We've been friends with the Pelican Project, which is a great, tell, you know, tell us in a, minute, in a minute about the Pelican Project. But 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 tell me, I guess, with this familial farm feel, were you born in a Christian home? How did you come to know Jesus? So my mom and dad um, came to know Christ through a revival um, right around the time I was born, maybe a year or two after I was born. And they really had a very sincere conversion of faith and started attending a little Baptist church and were very faithful to take me and my sisters to church. And so I grew up um, in a conservative church and conservative youth group. And I came to understand my need for Christ at a pretty young age. Although I will say I had multiple points where I came to understand the gospel better. Back then we would call it like reassurance of salvation or rededication. Now I just think of it as growing in my understanding of the faith. But, um, and then I went to Bible college and, um, you know, I wanted to, I, I love God from a pretty early mm. age. And, and so did you go to college thinking you're going to write books about God? No, not at all. I had thought a lot about being a lay missionary. And so I studied math education because I felt like it would be a, uh, a way for me to support myself. And I ended up going to South Korea huh. for a year um, as a lay missionary in a um, Korean American school to teach math. But while I was there, I developed pretty uh, serious form of juvenile diabetes. And um, after that, I... Got, I was pretty sick, came home pretty sick and um, ended up not ever going back, but ended up teaching and then getting married. And my life just took a little bit of a different track, but we um, were interested in church planting. And so ended up, um, and you know, it was interesting because my, my math, studying math education, it has always been an op, uh, a way that I've been able to support myself while still allowing me room for ministry. So that was a good choice in that sense. And so, and you got settled in South Carolina or was that a recent move? Moved back to South Carolina in 2015. After I got married, we went um, out to Seattle to help with Acts 29. At oh. the time they were centered there at Morris Hill Church in Seattle. And we were very interested in church planting. And so we went out there to help start a a church plant ended up getting um, very involved at Morris Hill, which was where Acts 29 was centered. And oh. um, over time I became um, 
deacon of uh, women's theology and teaching there at Mars Hill. Um, and then in, um, I don't know how much of the story you want, in 2008. I want, I want, I want all the gory details, Wendy. This is uh, interesting. Right. I didn't know you were at Mars Hill. I missed that chapter. So that might have been an yeah. interesting few years there. <laughs> yeah. So at Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll helped me get my book, uh, my first book contract, Practical Theology for Women, How Knowing God Makes a Difference in Our Daily Lives. And that was a good book. I'm glad I wrote that book. And I, I can't see Lord. you in you're so nice, Wendy. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of good stuff going on at Mars Hill before. There was also a lot of bad stuff going on at the same time. But when there's enough good stuff, like enough yeah. people really coming to see Christ for the first time, coming, I mean, it really had so many young men who um, were not from Christian homes coming to see their need for God for the first time. And so there's a part of it that was real and true and beautiful. And that's really what makes the parts that tainted it um, so so sad. Yeah. Um, But in 2008 was really a fork in the road. We had been there for about five or six years when there was a big explosion and um, we Mm. weren't involved in it. We were just watching it, but it was just very clearly, there was a sinful anger problem among the lead pastor and and he was supported instead of confronted about what was very clearly violation of lots mm. of different scriptures on language and love and and so it was after that that we ended up at a PCA church in Seattle that was a really mm. beautiful lovely place that it's not on anybody's radar. And sometimes I'm coming more and more to think that the really beautiful places where God is working, mm. many of them are not on anybody's radar. It's so true. And when you wrote the Practical Theology for Women book, what exactly do you mean when you think about theology for women? First, did you think people aren't, weren't teaching that? You felt like there was a need? And what does that even mean? Yeah, back in 2008, there were not, I mean, what we're, we're experiencing here in 2021 is very different, I think, in the Christian social media world than what was going on in 2008, particularly toward to women, especially within the new reform uh, movement. And so a lot of men, um, like through the Gospel Coalition and the what mm. Young Restless and Reform, they would call them. There was a lot of conversation among men, but there was not the same quality of conversation among women around doctrine and theology. And I was very burdened. And to Mars Hill's credit, they supported me in it, mm. that good doctrine was as important for women as it was for men. And so I, but I had a lot of sisters in Christ that did not recognize at that point that it was important for them. And so it really just kind of became my argument for why women need to value theology in conservative circles as much as men do. And um, you didn't think it was needed. Yeah. Or, and, and really, I really boiled it down to, it's really just the character of God. So I had grown up in my circles and, you know, the college we had attended I did not learn that much about the doctrine of God. I learned a lot more about the doctrine of man. What did man need to do? What did I need to do? I was a sinner and how did I need to um, act righteously? But I did not learn a lot of true theology. You know, the character of God, the father, attributes of God. 
um, the attributes of the Savior, how, what what the Trinity. I did not really understand um, those doctrines, and I thought of them as big words for guys getting their masters in seminary, and not as something that yeah. was that relevant to me on the ground day to day. But the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so over time, I realized, no, I do need to understand the character of God every bit as much as the guy preaching the Sunday sermons, if it's the root of wise daily living. And so the, really felt... So the, mm-hmm. Give an example to where that applies. Like how has it helped you practically, not just, oh, cool, and now I know God is omnipresent. Or, and by the way, those are hard words. People who haven't grown up in the church genuinely, don't, I taught a, a lesson recently, and that word came up, and omniscient, omnipresent. And somebody genuinely was like, what do those words mean? And I felt it was such a, an important question, but like, give me a practical outplaying of how understanding theology can change your life on the ground. Well, I I thought a lot about it as God is my father, God is my savior, and God is my help. And if in these moments of stress, you know, and we might talk about it sometimes today, but like right now as a, I'm a mom, I've got medical issues, and I have a thousand stressful things um, bombarding me. And my tendency is to go to fear, anxiety, or anger. Yeah. But do I really believe that do I believe that God is ever ready and present to aid me in my struggles? Mm. What does it mean that he was um, able to nourish those who are tempted? You know, what does it mean that he is my savior and not just that I have been saved, but that I am being saved and will Mm. be saved, you know? So how does sanctification the, my knowledge of God and, and the Holy Spirit's role in my sanctification, why does this break into this moment right now of fear and anxiety and stress and equip me to respond with hope or repentance? Right. And so, um, I think there are a thousand different ways it plays in on any given day, but we're oblivious sometimes. Well, I agree. And so going back to like comparing the situation, you've got a pastor, he loses his school, he gets, he knows theology, right? I mean, now forget the pastor, let's talk about us. You know, you got a lot going on, you're spread thin. And, and I mean, this is so close to home, right? You hear, you know, it helps me instead of getting, giving into fear and anxiety or anger. How do you in the moment, I mean, pastor us sort of in this moment, so to speak, like, what would you tell the woman that's like overwhelmed? I know we haven't started talking about a bit of your story in terms of your divorce and single motherhood, but you're a single mom. And I would imagine there's a lot of pressure in that situation. Like, how does that theology become reality in that moment? So rather than being like, you know, going into like ER mode, ah, you know, whatever, like get this thing on the road. How do you go into family practice doctor mode, which is God is in control. I can do this. How do you turn the switch on in the reactionary moments of your life? How do you do it? Yeah, I feel like um, what you really need to do, if there's one act of the will, it's that prayer, Lord, open my eyes Mm. to wonderful things out of your law. And when I'm in that really bad place, it's Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, where he prays that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened. And in crisis moments, that's what I'm trying to train myself to pray. Lord, open my eyes to how the truth of your character 
breaks in right now and makes a difference. And it can be just a groan, Mm. but that's the space. And I feel like God always meets me in that prayer. Amen. He always opens my eyes. He is so gracious in his response to that prayer. And we just have to stop. Sometimes I'll, I'll make myself stop. And if I can, for a moment, step out of it. Yeah. Like step out of the emotion. Can I stop, stand over, observe myself for a second and, and take account of what's going on here before I step back into these emotions and feelings? And that's a self-discipline that I think I've been able to get to. But it yeah. really started in the crisis moments with just the cry to God for help. Mm. Well, you remind me of uh, Vanitha, who came to us and talked about suffering. And I think I think she noticed what I believe you talk a lot about, which is the idea that suffering sort of awakens you to your need for God and puts you in a place of that dependence. And so I do want to move into sort of talk to us a little about how you moved from theology to very, your, you know, your last book that you just that just came out is a Companions in Suffering. How did you jump from such an intellectual theme to a very practical and close and painful theme? And sort of what were the circumstances that led you, led you to write the second book? Or I'm sorry, maybe not the second book, but your more recent book. Yeah. So in 2015, I went through a divorce I didn't want. And it was very tied to some pretty intense struggles my ex-husband had. And um, it was just a, it was a very, very troublesome time. Troublesome in my own head, troublesome in his head, which resulted in trouble and how I processed what was going on and then ended up really with what seemed like my life in an ash heap around my feet. And in that, I ended up moving back to South Carolina to my grandparents and parents' farm, really because I needed a safety net. And I just could not afford on my own income to stay in Seattle. So moved back here, just started to get my feet back under me. I was uh, 45. So you had kids with you, right? Uh, yeah, they they were 9 and 11, I think, or 10 and 12 by that point. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, wow. And, and so it was really, you know, the first stress of the divorce and my ex-husband's mental health issues and trying to get my feet back on the ground and figuring out how to support myself financially. And I already had diabetes at that point, you know, so I already had a good bit of medical issues. And then to have the breast cancer, which really felt out of the blue, really was an unexpected thing. And it knocked me so hard so far down and I couldn't see a way forward. It was just dark and it coincided with a really bad time for my ex-husband as well, his mental health. And so he was really no help to me at that point. And he, he's in a better place now. I really praise God a lot for that, but not in 2017 was not. And so this was a very, very disconcerting low place. Um, And that's became the catalyst as I walked through that, you know, what I really felt was a deep and profound loneliness and despair, despite the fact that I did have people around me. So companions in suffering is not necessarily about you're totally physically alone, 
but I felt so alienated in my own head. So even though I had a church family that supported me, it was almost like water off a duck's back, like it couldn't penetrate to where I really was deep. I needed a deeper in my psyche kind of intervention. And this is really how God met me at that very, very profoundly dark place and showed me he was with me and he understood and holding me upright when I couldn't hold myself upright. What were the things that like the tipping points, so to speak, what were you just like in the word of God regularly, or did you go through a season that you, I always, I always ask people, I struggle in my suffering to feel like God is against me. Was that, did you ever feel like it was unfair? I mean, it was like diabetes that the first church messed husband. It's like, how many hits can a human take? Like, did you ever feel like questioning God? Like, why is this happening to me? Uh, very much so, but I, I handled it more like, I felt like I was an angry child that refused to look at him. Like I knew he was there. I had enough of a relationship with him to know he was there, right. but I couldn't hardly make eye contact. I could barely bring myself to read scripture, um, could barely bring myself to pray. And I found the book of Job a really wonderful comfort because I, what, what I would do is I would put it on um, an audio Bible on my iPod and I would walk the loop around my farmhouse on the farm and I would skip over the friends and I would just listen to Job's lament. I wouldn't listen to what God said, but I, there was so much that Job said that was recorded in eternal scripture that was exactly how I was feeling. And Job gets so raw with God. He says the kind of things that you would think would be heresy or that God would strike him with lightning. But then God says at the end, God, you know, affirms Job and he and he tells Job's friends that you you have not said the right things like Job has. And so it was such a blessing to me to be able to repeat Job's words and say, I feel this too, God. And it was like the first way I could start having conversation with God again. So good. I, f- I felt like God had gifted me Job's lament. Even to hear that is so encouraging to me, let alone people listening. My, my, I got goosebumps hearing you say it in the sense that you're right. There's a, there's, there's a secret place where we're so afraid to admit what we're thinking about God. And yet we kind of know that he knows so it's like you're stuck in a rock in a hard place sometimes because you're hurting and you don't want to talk to God, but you don't know how to say it. And you worry that if he knew exactly and who does, but you know that, oh my gosh, it's going to be even worse. But how gracious that God would, that's such a great way to, to even read through Job. I mean, I think somebody listening might want to even do this trick. Any specific versions that spoke to you at the time? Like, do you find that just do the good old, you know? I don't know if at the time I was reading the Crips, Christian Standard Bible. I really like their audio Bible. Um, But another place that's real similar is Psalm 73, and it's Asaph, and he's just tormented. And I I really always kind of get a kick out of it because Asaph, in the psalm that's recorded for us, goes through all these things that he's feeling. And then he says, if I actually said them out loud, I would be basically denying you to the congregation. In the end, the congregation ends up singing this song that Asaph wrote. 
maybe in private, he wrote it originally thinking I shouldn't even put this to word. You know, I shouldn't even say this stuff out loud. And God's like, no, say it out loud. Let's sing it. I'm going to record it in scripture, say it out loud. And um, his gift between Psalm 73 and Job, God's gift of words to lament when you don't even know how to put it into words is just a profound gift of grace from God. Amen. And, and he doesn't kick you out. He's still there with open arms. What, what, what do you think is the hardest aspect of being a single mom as a Christian? For me, it's always having this feeling in my psyche. It's always niggling at the back of my head that I've failed. I failed my marriage and I will fail my boys. It's a constant fear because I value marriage. You know, I value the covenant of marriage. I I wanted a two-parent family. And so it, I really had to um, believe the gospel and believe um, in God's working through suffering. That, you know, the fact that my boys don't have a stable two-parent home isn't going to destroy them. And why, from my understanding of the character of God, can I say that? And, and that's the kind of thing I've had to really lean into because I spent so long in youth group that was trying to encourage me to do sex and marriage the right way. And I thought I had, and now I sit in this ash heap. Now I'm past that in many ways. Like I really believe God. I don't think God is condemning me. I, I really do believe God has a good plan for both me and my children. I still lament the loss though. And I have to think through how to, you know, I still process it. I still long, I, I wish it had been different, but I also really believe in God's power to bring purpose and meaning from the ash heap. I told you before the show, I've gotten a lot of emails from people uh, who have asked me about divorce care. And I, I've done a lot of podcasts about a lot of topics. And I don't know that we've spent a lot of time thinking through a bit single parenthood and divorce on this podcast as I probably should have. But do you think as common as divorce has become in the church, does it still carry a weight of shame or have we become sort of so used to it? Now we've moved on to other things. Like talk a little bit about fitting into the church as a divorced woman. And especially as a divorced woman in ministry. Well, there's this tension, right? Like if we embrace the divorced woman, are we going to somehow communicate that divorce is not so bad? And I feel like it in my own life. Like I want to be clear that I value the covenant of marriage. I value it now more than I ever did because I've seen the pain of breaking covenant. But at the same time, lots of covenants are broken because we are sinful people. So, you know, it's like the single mom where you don't want to elevate the single mom because there's this perception that then, oh, everybody's going to think it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. So there's this tension that we uh, feel within, or at least that I originally felt, would I be perceived this way? And I don't feel that way anymore, but I do think it's just going to be inevitable because we don't want sin. I mean, it's like forgiving. I don't know. I mean, it's not exactly the perfect analogy, but any sin that we forgive and look to God to transform, there's always the fear that we 
are discounting or minimizing um, the weight of the sin. And I don't think that's true at all, actually, because I think implied in forgiveness or repentance is an understanding that this is not right. This is not okay. It's not how God intended it to be. But that our God is sovereign even over sinful circumstances. And so I have complete confidence um, that just as God was sovereign over the sins done against Joseph, you know, that he is sovereign over the sins done against my children um, or, you know, sins that I committed or sins that were committed against me. He's sovereign over these things. And so we can face them head on. We can name them for what they are. So I feel like I don't have a problem saying, I wish I weren't divorced. Divorce is wrong. I wish it had not happened to me. I wish that we had gone a different way. I think God wanted it in a different way. I can both say that and say God is sovereign over divorce, and I believe he's going to use it for good in mine and my children's life. Right. That's good. And I mean, this is another example of theology having an extremely practical application with women or with life, which is incredible. I mean, it's so true. Like, how do you deny that? Um, do you think, like, do you struggle with the concept of remarriage or are you open to it? Like, I remember, you know, I'll be thinking about it right now with all the other stuff that you've got going on. But in general, like, is that, how challenging is that? Is that something that you hope for or you just sort of it has to plop you in the face for it to happen? Yeah, I don't hope for it. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. I Right now, our family has a pretty healthy, unhealthy family, or I I say we put the fun and dysfunctional where we're, my ex-husband comes over every day and eats dinner with us and the boys have him in their lives. He helps me. Um, and it's God's kindness and it's both broken, but it's also beautiful. And so I don't think we will get remarried. I mean, he's just in a very different mental place. Um, than he was. And I'm not sure that I, it would be wise for me to pursue that, but in whatever ways we can provide some kind of healthy structure for my kids. Yeah. um, I feel like that is my righteous goal and pursuit right now down the road. I I'm not, I don't know exactly how I feel about it long-term, but I I feel like for right now, that um, structure we have right now in our home is best for my children. And also you know, there's so, so much self-actualization and a lot of conversation. What's best for you? I'm going to tell you, if you're a single mom and you see your kids flourishing, and um, that's really good for your own mental health. And so I don't pursue my um, individual joy because my individual joy is wrapped up in the health of those I love. So... As of right now, I cannot foresee how remarriage for me would not, would add to what I think is God's purpose for us right now. So I'm just going to live my fun little dysfunctional life as long as God has it this way. And, you know, maybe around the corner, we would reconsider something different. A, a couple of situations come to mind. I'd love your wisdom on them. I mean, there's, what would you say to the to the couple of men or women listening who stay married when they know they should leave? Uh, and, you know, some things are obvious, like the scripture tells us specifically, like the times when divorce is, you know, a okay. 
um, versus, you know, people leave because they grow apart, which I'm, I'm not sure that's biblically okay, right, in those situations. But but there's such times where women and men know, uh, and I, I think I, I might think maybe more so women, maybe they're in an abusive relationship where, and granted, it could be vice versa, but more women who might feel like they stay for the sake of saving the marriage. But And I think that is sort of not spoken about in churches where women just live through a life of abuse, you know, thinking that there's a there's something worse, which would be to be divorced. How would you counsel, particularly with a woman who might be staying, you know, for the sake of doing the right thing, but maybe suffering in a way that might not be right either? Yeah, I I think you have to look at it as what is non-negotiable. And if your children are being harmed, your children are being physically hurt, that's non-negotiable. So you have to draw a line in the sand. And even if you have to bear the disgrace of divorce, that's that that's non-negotiable there you've got to get your children to safety are you bearing verbal abuse well i think you have some more wiggle room in how you respond to it but i do believe um you are right to say do not talk to me that way that's not okay and draw a line in the sand and and the kind of things you will and won't respond to you have agency in it and your only agency is not divorce and I think a lot of women would like to avoid conflict and maybe a lot of men like to avoid conflict, but I wish that I had had more boldness to say, do not talk to me like that. That is not okay at an earlier point. And then I I would also say our world does not value the noble self-sacrifice of staying in covenant with someone when you have quote unquote grown apart. And I do think that it is noble if you covenanted with someone to value covenant. Um, we value it in legal. You may you enter a contract with a person. Well, why, why is it hard to break a contract? Because there are serious consequences that harm both members of a contract when you break them. And marriage is the contract the fabric of God's created community. And so I do think there's a nobility of the self-sacrifice that stays in something that's uncomfortable, that works toward its improvement, that doesn't give up and doesn't shut up, you know, doesn't stop, you know, doesn't give up in a way like, okay, well, we're just, it's just going to be like this. I think it's good and right to say, you know, I would like to go to counseling. Do not talk to me that way. I am uncomfortable with how our marriage is right now. And I think we should try to work for better, those kind of things. But there are non-negotiables and particularly around the safety of yourself or your children. You need to get out. How would you encourage a woman who might feel like it's fine to leave, but has been counseled, like specifically, I'm, I guess I want to hone in a bit more on, on the, the faithful churchgoers. These are common scenarios. You know, you and I come from a pre-conservative Christian background where the pastors and the leadership of church seem to also value protecting the marriage, protecting a family from divorce at the cost of the woman's safety and um, and all that you would expect in a marriage that is Christian. You know, yeah. what do you do there? I was so fortunate um, because my pastors and even family members, Christian family members, 
I stayed in longer than, and I, you know, they didn't encourage me to stay in something that was unsafe. And they both, and I was counseled this way, you know, if it becomes unsafe, that is your line in the sand. And so I really think what I ended up doing, and I encourage any woman in a situation similar to mine, you need to be in a church where you trust the folks under whose authority you sit. And I trusted my pastors. And so then I could hear their feedback as they sat outside and saw things about my responses that Mm -hmm. I couldn't necessarily see for myself. So if you get to a point where you are counseled by pastors you trust and but you feel like their counsel is wrong, well, that's that's a big fork in the road. Yeah. And I would you're going to have to make a choice at that point. But you need to really pray and seek a lot of wisdom before you choose to discount what your pastors say and go your own way. Because that is, I just say, it's a heavy weight. It is a heavy weight to go on your own way against the advice of your pastors. And I'm not saying don't do it, but I will not discount the weight that you will carry if you do. If you can get in a place where you have support um, of pastors. And for me, I was in a, a denomination where the pastors and the elders took very seriously their shepherding care of me. And um, my, my elders, and I like to tell my story because I want folks to know there are, I mean, I hear all the time the yeah, stories of pastors who handled it badly. Yeah. But I like, I want women to know that some pastors will handle it well. And my pastors and elders, one of my elders in my church was a lawyer. A fam, uh, he wasn't in family law, but he got me in touch with another Christian lawyer in his group. And so my pastor and this elder who was the lawyer and this other Christian lawyer who would be my family lawyer, all three of them sat down with me in a conference room and we hashed out everything that was going on, what the scenarios, possible scenarios going forward, how they would counsel me. And they were all, my pastor in particular told me, look, I'm going to tell you what I think you should do. I'm not telling you what you have to do to be in good standing with our church. Wow. And that um, advice for me, having their support was so powerful and so important and so necessary for my own mental health as a sincere Christian who wanted to do the right thing in this very complicated situation. I, so I like to tell the story of how my elders handled it because I want women to have support of their elders. And if they don't, I want them to have a vision for how it can happen because I'd, I hate to hear of families that are having to go through something like this without trusting elders to give them good advice. I think that might be another reason to look for that small church that's doing good work because I think you can get right. so lost in the number. I think the story of our gen- of this generation, this era, is church people who go to church even regularly, but there's not really a closeness with the pastors to the point where you might feel comfortable sitting under you know their authority and even to know them. I mean, it might even be about not sitting under. It's just that you might be like, oh, I don't even know them. If I send them right. an email, they won't even respond. And so there right. is something to be said about what church is, which is this community of believers in, you know, involved in one another's life, which is what you're describing, which is amazing. Right. 
But what, what about the woman? And we're coming to the end. I, I, there's so many scenarios we could explore here, Wendy, but also speak to uh, the man or woman who are uh, divorced or non-divorced, who are getting in, into serious relationships and marriage in order to plug their loneliness, fix their loneliness. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very rare that you actually, that actually works. I think that um, there is a hole in our human hearts that has only, it's a black hole that only an infinite God can truly fill. And even during, I mean, I had many years, I had a good marriage. Um, Mm. So really mental health issues and a change in his mental health status that really impacted us. But I had an emotional need that went beyond what he could meet. And I think this is often the case. And so then someone's efforts to meet your emotional needs will inevitably fall short if you if your infinite need for companionship is not first met at some level in Christ. Um, and so you have to have a place you can go to when your spouse is not meeting your emotional needs. And then you can turn to them and say, you know what, I want to offer you grace. You you can't be everything to me. And so I can receive from you what you can give. And even today with my ex-husband, I feel like God has allowed me to receive from him what he can give and be thankful for that. And God provides for me. God is my father. God is my savior. God is my help. The Trinity provides for me at my infinite level of need. And then what I can receive from these relationships uh, among those that I live close to, I can receive it for what it is and be thankful for what they can offer. Amen. Wendy, you got a lot of practical advice. I really, I really like it. You've got such a peaceful nature. I want to give away some of your books. So I actually want to give away both the theology book and the companions and suffering, the companions and suffering. I would love to give it to a single mom. So if you're a single mom listening can you, uh, let's have two people. We'll give that book to email me at Lena, L-I-N-A at livingwithpower.org. And then the theology for women, I guess today we're going to pick on you guys, guys, and you can't submit any requests. We'll have the woman submit a book for theology for women, unless you're a guy and want to make a compelling case to give this for a gift for somebody you love. You can explain that in the email again, Lena at livingwithpower.org. And Wendy, how do people connect with you, follow you? Uh, you're on Twitter. I know. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, you can um, follow me at um, Wendy Alsup on Twitter. And then um, theologyforwomen at gmail.com is my email. Theologyforwomen.org is my website. Well, I've so appreciated the time uh, you've given us and uh, talking about, I, I know, you know, it's easy to sum up a life in a 45, 50 minute segment, but I know that there's a lot of wisdom and pain and healing that has taken place to get you here. So I love you for sharing what you have, and I thank you for being with us and look forward to everybody getting to know you more, hopefully through your books. Thanks. You ask good questions, Lena. Mm -hmm. Guys, uh, it's been so great being with you today. We're going to wrap up today's episode. Come back next week for more Dear Lena. In the meantime, check out Wendy's books, and if you want to find out more about our ministry, go to livingwithpower.org. I'd love for you to join us on Thursday nights. Click on that top page box 
on our website. It says join our community. I teach live on Thursday nights in Facebook. So I'd love to have you as part of our group. And if you want to uh, submit a question for the Dear Lena uh, usual podcast that I do, send it to dearlena at livingwithpower.org. I'll answer just about anything you ask about faith, life, God, and culture. Hey, have a great day. And don't forget that God is with you. He loves you. He's got his hand on you. And I hope you know that with all of your heart today. Thank you.